Hey everyone, I'm Brandon Odo. And I'm Brian Bowling. And this is Critical Care Scenarios, the podcast where we use clinical cases, narrative storytelling, and expert guests to unpack how critical care is practiced in the real world. Hey everyone, Brandon Odo again, back with another Turbo. I want to talk about hope. Hope and waiting. Something that comes up often when we're teaching, I find, newer folks learning to practice critical care and resuscitate patients, particularly when they're learning what many people are challenged by, which is managing acute emergencies, cardiac arrests, decompensation, maybe going to rapid responses, bad stuff, basically. And especially if you're trying to teach them to have some degree of autonomy and ability to handle these things on their own. I find that for many people, if you're teaching these things, and especially if you do it in a, a formal context like simulation, where you're, you're really kind of putting them on the spot and asking them to you know, decide what to do now and then now and then now, as if they were actually there, for many people, they'll start drawing blanks. They won't necessarily know what to do next, or maybe they know, but they're not fully confident in it. And therefore, they'll do nothing. And they'll justify that by saying, well, I would call for help. And of course, they should call for help. If something really bad is happening, you should get as much help as possible. And certainly, if you are relatively new in your career, and certainly if you're in the role of, say, an APP where there is somebody like an attending intensivist on your team, sure, all these people should know what's going on and hopefully should be able to lend a hand and come riding in to save the day. However, if your plan for managing these problems is to call for help and then do nothing, really your plan is to hope that somebody comes and gets you off the hook. You're hoping that someone's gonna walk in the door or get on the phone or something and tell you what to do. Somebody who can manage the problem so you don't have to. And that is not a plan. A plan involves you fixing the problem or at least working on it, at least managing the situation, attempting to improve it, attempting to stabilize it not just waiting for somebody else to do that. And I think this is true for much of what we do. A lot of things in the ICU will involve one thing happening and another thing happening and another thing happening, and it may be that something else will change your current plan. However, 90% of the time, I think the right way to treat patients is to not assume that it will and wait for it to happen. Oh, the family is considering transitioning this patient to just comfort measures only on Friday. So should we continue to do all this other stuff in the meantime? Well, yes, maybe that will happen. Maybe it won't happen for a while. Maybe it will never happen. Don't expect and wait that change to sort of get you off the hook. Do your job until then. Likewise, you have an unstable crashing patient Manage the problem. So when we're teaching, what I tell people is, don't expect help to arrive. Let it surprise you. Call for them. 
mobilize the assets you need, ask for assistance, and then expect and plan to manage the problem yourself. Nobody is coming. It's up to you. That should be your assumption. Let the help surprise you. Let them walk in the door when you had almost forgotten that they were coming. Otherwise, hope becomes your plan. If your plan is to wait for them to get there, the implication is that you're going to do nothing until then, including perhaps very necessary things, including maybe the call you didn't want to have to make. Those things are not going to go away just because you hope that yeah, somebody smarter than you is going to roll up sometime soon. Maybe, maybe not. Maybe it won't be for ages. Maybe it'll be in a couple minutes. Maybe their car crashes. An old friend, Monty, who was a, a federal air marshal, used to describe that when they did their live-action simulation training for their own drills, one of the key tenets is that you never die. Meaning, you could get shot right in the face five times in a row. In reality, you would be laid out for sure. However, the whole purpose of training and simulation is to ingrain certain habits and responses into you. It's to make certain behaviors. And if you get shot and then you lay down and say, oh, I'm dead, that's the response you're training in yourself. And that is never going to be a useful response. Now, you might say that's realistic, but this is a case where more realism is not helpful. You don't need to train that response. If somebody shoots you and you die, that's going to happen on its own. What you want to train is the response that no matter what happens, I'm going to continue to work this problem and keep going. And then if something changes that, whether it's getting shot in the head or in the medical situation, somebody smarter than you or more equipped to handle this problem rolls up, then great. Let that surprise you. You don't need to do anything. As another example, I used to do some fencing, you know, sparring for points. And the way it would work is that you're each trying to hit each other, mark them, at which point the round would end and you would get a point. And if nobody touched the other person, then it would continue. So many times what people will do is they'll sort of go for a hit and then they'll implement whatever they have in their, their toolbox and then they'll hope they got it and then they'll sort of freeze and strike a pose because I hope I got it. The problem is what if they didn't? If you didn't get a hit, things are not over. And then the other person is trying to hit you. So routinely what would happen is they'd try for something, it would fail, and then they'd be sort of sitting there and the other person would just whack them on the head. In fact, what they should be training is to keep going until the referee tells you to stop. There's no point in ever assuming that you're done because all that does is train you reflexively to stop at certain times. What you should be training is to go and go and go. If you went for a hit, great. Now reset, protect yourself, go for the next one. And then when it's over, somebody will tell you it's over. Much the same thing applies when you're managing patients. Somebody will tell you when you're done. It'll be obvious. That should not be how you train. So it's the same story here. I think a lot of people, they call for help, they want to wait for something, and then that's kind of what they've got, and that's the end of their plan. That cannot be the end of your plan. It can be part of the plan, the beginning of your plan, but life goes on. What do you think is going to happen in reality? Oh, this patient needs surgery. 
I'll call the surgeons. All right, great, that's done. Now what? End of scenario? Oh, wait, the clock is still ticking. There's still a patient in front of me. What happens in real life? You just have to keep working the problem. If some end to it comes, somebody else arrives, your shift ends, you pass out, well, then that'll happen. But what you should be teaching and learning and training is that you're going to deal with whatever's in front of you until there's no longer a problem in front of you. Learn to manage patience as if it's going to be forever. Sometimes that means training to do things that you hope to never have to do because somebody else will be able to do it for you. But if they weren't there, it would be necessary. There are some low probability, very high acuity procedures and situations this applies to. Somebody may have to perform a cricothyrotomy. Somebody may have to give TPA for the PE and cardiac arrest. Somebody may have to perform an emergency hysterotomy on a pregnant patient whose heart stops. You may hope that this never happens to you, and it might. You may hope that somebody else will be there who is better trained and more equipped to do these things, but you should know that if they're not, then if nobody does it, the patient's probably going to die. You can't wait for somebody to roll in from God knows where. The person at the bedside is going to do it or nobody is, and therefore, that should potentially be you. If a patient cannot be oxygenated or ventilated by any means, and their SAT is zero, and they're about to code or they're already coding, what are you going to do if there's nobody else who can do a crike? Are you going to prepare to do it and then plan to go through with it? And then if somebody from anesthesia or surgery or who knows what rocks through the door and then does it for you, then great all the better, but otherwise you fully intend to do that thing? Or are you gonna look at your watch and say, gosh, I hope somebody shows up soon to save this patient? If your plan is the latter, fine, but realize one of the consequences of that decision is that if that patient had somebody different taking care of them on that day, then they might have lived. Food for thought, talk to you next time.